couple of announcements that we need to go over. First of all, in the uh, bulletin, you'll notice there's a financial report. Now, on the financial report, in the center section, gives the information about our building fund income. And that minus that you see in the column on the right is erroneous. We do not lack 26000 We have a ba- positive balance of 26000 Okay, so Al's up there, you know, ra- you know, raising his arms like, well, I don't know where that came from. Well, gremlins in his computer. Another word about the um, building fund income, just in case you're wondering what's going on, um, one of the things that we had, we've had to put some of our planning on hold until we had, uh, until we received clear title to the property. Now, for some of you may say, well, why don't we have clear title? Well, that's because back in the old days in 1811 when things were done, the way things were done, um, we just have that original title, and that does not uh, equate to a clear title in the 21st century. Not that that is a problem. It just involves a tremendous amount of, of uh, legal work and time. And we have been to- told by uh, our lawyer that we should have that accomplished sometime by August or September of this year. Consequently, we are not... Uh, are not making any plans. We're not. Uh, the city has, a, uh, or Preston City has, a number of plans for the area that they're discussing, and we're just keeping an extremely low profile until we get clear, uh, clear deed to the property. Eventually, we have to do something. Eventually, when we have to do something, we need to have uh, approximately two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand in that account, and not twenty-six. So don't forget that that is a need, and we have to continuously be putting aside into that building fund. Just because you don't hear anything doesn't mean something's not going to be done. We just have to wait until this other uh, project of uh, related to the deed gets, gets done before we can uh, talk about or make definite plans about our, uh, our future. The second, regarding the calendar, I just found out yesterday but don't have any solid details on this, that on the, I believe it's going to be on the 18th of May, that weekend, and probably that night over at North Stonington, because they usually have a Saturday night service over there, John Niemola, who is the professor of Greek at Chafer Theological Seminary, is going to be here that weekend. And so I'll try to get more information, but uh, John's a great guy. He's got a tremendous... Uh, Knowledge of the Greek, God is, has his uh, Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary, or his Ph.D. in, from, in Greek from Dallas. And uh, I first met John, I think, many years ago when I was working on my uh, doctoral studies there. And then again at North Stonington, and we are always invited to this, they have their Memorial Day Bible Conference, which I think begins on Friday night the 24th and goes through that weekend and uh, Ron Merriman is going to be speaking, and he has spoken in the past. Some of you know him, and he will be uh, speaking on Matthew 24. So that's a key passage for eschatology and prophecy and often misunderstood in places. So I know Ron will do a great job there. So you can make a note of that for your own uh, planning. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will walk and not grow weary. They shall run and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to uh, make sure that uh, we're in fellowship, that the speakers are working, and that uh, we're ready to concentrate and focus on God's Word. So let's uh, bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to come together this morning. We thank you for this nation that we live in, that we have freedoms unlike those that have been available to the vast majority of the human race and human history, that among these we have the freedom to gather together and worship, to study your word unhindered and unrestrained by government regulation. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this war against terrorism and all of the uh, things that are going on internationally. We pray for our protection. We pray that uh, though we have many enemies and there are uh, millions in the Middle East who hate this country and would do anything they could to destroy it, that you would protect our borders, that you would uh, foil their schemes and destroy their plans, and that you would give wisdom and skill to our leaders and those who are Uh, protecting our nation and our borders, that they would be able to uh, catch and capture uh, these terrorists. Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we might realize that that your word is absolute truth and that we are to renovate our thinking, completely overhaul the way we think about life, the way we think about uh, even the way we think, that we might exchange the human viewpoint in our own souls for the divine viewpoint of your word, that we might be oriented to your word, oriented to grace, and therefore oriented to reality. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a passage in the Old Testament. Don't forget, we're still in 1 Corinthians, but we're going to begin in Isaiah with a passage in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul begins to, uh, be- begins to address the basic problem in Corinth. And the basic problem in Corinth, even though they had all of these uh, relational problems, all these problems with carnality, problems of sin, problems of uh, disobedience to God's Word, problems with His authority, problems with the authority of anybody else presenting sp- spiritual truth, even though they were involved in distorting and disrupting the Lord's table, they didn't have role relationships and marriage down, they, they were distorting the spiritual gifts, and just one problem on top of another. It's not 
Paul's methodology to address those particular problems at the starting point. He needs to deal with the underlying issue, and the underlying issue was that the Corinthians had not come to understand who they were in Jesus Christ and what their spiritual assets were in Jesus Christ. And above all, what Paul is saying in chapter 1 and 1 through 3 is that until the uh, Corinthians understand that they have to think differently, they have to uh, get rid of the human viewpoint frame of reference that they have that they brought into the church with them from their past life as in their uh, uh, and Greek culture until they get rid of that they're still going to continue to have the problems that they have because they're thinking like unbelievers they're not thinking like uh, believers according to divine viewpoint the problem is that we have to recognize that there is a radical difference between the way God thinks and the way man thinks. There's a radical difference between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. It's not merely a matter of exchanging a few points or just sort of polishing things up. If you use the analogy of uh, refurbishing a home, it's not a matter of changing the paint on the wall or tearing off the old wallpaper and putting on new wallpaper and just doing a patch job. Scripture says that autonomous or independent man, based on his sin nature, has constructed an entire frame of reference in his thinking that is false. It's built on a false foundation, and therefore everything built on that foundation is wrong, even though there may be many things in there that are good and valid. Let's let's take the analogy of building a house. Let's say a co- uh, contractor comes in and lays a foundation, but the concrete that he uses is somehow flawed. It's got a bad mixture of sand and water, got many flaws in it, and so it's an unstable foundation. Well, he may build on that with with extremely good products. There may be good wood. There may be quality brick. He may have used excellent paint. Problem is the whole thing is built on a false foundation. So even though some of the elements built on that foundation are in and of themselves good and correct because they are fitted now within a framework that is based on a wrong foundation, they have become uh, a liability as opposed to something positive. So everything has to be torn down and rebuilt. And that is the way the Scripture talks about the believer's renovation of his mind. Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 2, is that we are not to be conformed to the world but be transformed. And the word there is uh, like, uh, like our word metamorphosis, Metamorpho, and it means to completely transform, completely renovate. There's a 100% change that takes place. And the difficult thing is when you look at a house, you can't tell what the foundation's like. I noticed that this last week. I was down in Houston taking care of some business uh, for my dad, and uh, the house next door, which has always had problems and has been vacant off and on, had, they've had a hard time renting it, various problems with the house, and the guy who lived there uh, died in a was a young guy in his 30s, I guess. Died of a, in a scuba diving accident about six months ago. So they, his 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 heirs apparently sold the house to one of these big companies that buys up old falling down houses. And they've gone in there, and I I didn't even recognize the house when I got there this last time because they've just gone in and overhauled everything. And they've got one of these enormous dumpsters out in the driveway. And it looks like they've, they've gone into the house and they've just chopped up the, a lot of the foundation that's in there. I mean, this thing is just filled with enormous chunks of concrete. Now, when you look at the house from the outside, you can't tell that there are foundational problems. You have to have an engineer come in and 
uh, find those foundational problems and then correct them. So that's the problem with uh, Christianity is you may have a nice-looking life on the outside. Everything may look good. You may adopt morality and a lot of religious practices and a certain amount of biblical truth. But if the foundation of your thinking is flawed, not built on human viewpoint, if you're still operating on, to some degree or another, autonomous rationalism or empiricism, then your whole edifice is going to be skewed and off balance. And so there has to be this radical shift because there's a radical difference between the way God thinks and the way man thinks. And this is what Isaiah is getting at in Isaiah chapter 55. And he is quoting the Lord. And in verse verse 8 he says, the Lord is speaking. Now, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as heaven as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So there is this emphasis that the thinking of God and the methodology, ways refers to his methods, the way he does things. And so often we in America, because of our pragmatic culture, want to draw a distinction between uh, thinking and methodology. We, we adopt methods for doing things that are practical, that, that seem to work, and we validate the procedure and the methodology because it produces results. And as I pointed out last time when we went through the doctrine of witnessing, perhaps no other area in Christianity except for perhaps church growth today, but, but it's definitely a related concept, has... Um, been so impacted by this kind of pragmatic thinking. You come into most churches in America, they do what they do and call it ministry because it works. And what they mean by working is it seems to make people feel better. It seems to bring more people into the congregation. The church is growing, and therefore it must be right. We practice a certain methodology. You can go out and buy different books on evangelistic procedures and methods and because these seem to work, they're nothing more than salesmanship techniques applied to the gospel because they seem to produce a vast number of, of at least overt converts. Therefore, this must be blessed by God. And God's blessing is defined and discovered on the basis of how successful something is. And what you've done is you've come to Christianity and imported into your value system, into your norms and standards, the value systems of pragmatic, uh, of the pragmatic business world in America. If it produces results and produces numbers, then it must be good, it must be from God, and it must be correct. But what God says is there is a definite connection between how you do what you do and how you think. And Paul is getting at the same point in 1 Corinthians. Actually, 1 Corinthians 2 is one of the best sections in Scripture developing this, that there is a connection between how you think and what you do, and how you think should affect what you do. You should spend time thinking, you spend more time thinking about the ideological underpinnings or the theological underpinnings of why you do what you do in your practice. You know, churches should look at, and they don't, unfortunately, they look at worship. What do you do in corporate worship? Why do you do what you do? What are the influences there? And see, in American church history, we have adopted certain approaches to corporate worship that were developed for all kinds of reasons, many of which were not sound theologically. 
and one I that one of the more obvious is that you find in many churches and evangelistic crusades is the walking the aisle invitation where they will uh, the evangelist or the pastor at the end of the service will give an invitation to the congregation and uh, explain the gospel and then have people come forward now there's a lot of people who have tried to modify that into various ways so it's not so extreme or not so manipulative but the point is that the whole concept has its roots in the theolo- a very man-centered theology of an of a evangelist in the early 19th century by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. And Finney did not believe that in, in the doctrine of total depravity, that all men were born sinners, that all men were born with the imputation of Adam's original sin, and that all men were born with a sin nature. He believed that every baby is born in a state of innocence and neutrality just as Adam was originally created. And therefore, it was theoretically possible that somebody could live to adulthood and never sin. And that uh, a human being, therefore, the problem wasn't sin. The problem was his will. Now, we believe in many ways that the problem is will, but the problem is will secondarily for us because the initial problem is sin. The initial problem is that we are born corrupt. We are born uh, with a sin nature. We are, we have in inherited Adam's sin, and we have had the imputation of Adam's original sin. So man is basically uh, corrupt, and then he commits personal sins because he is a sinner. See, man is born a sinner. He is born with a sin nature. That means he is a sinner before he commits any sin. But in Arminianism, and in especially Finney's brand, man is a sinner because he sins. Now, there's a vast difference, in your, and that, that difference is going to affect your approach. So what, in terms of his methodology of evangelism, what people basically need is to be motivated or convinced uh, emotionally to uh, change their will. And so the issue isn't the conviction of God the Holy Spirit, as per John 16, 4 through 8, as the truth of the gospel that men are sinners and men need a redemption through Jesus Christ and that Christ died as a substitute for their sins because in Finney's theology, since man is not totally depraved and corrupt, he is, he is uh, basically good, he is improvable. And so the purpose of the atonement is not to die for sin as a substitute, but to provide an example so that man can improve himself. Now, if you've got a flawed view of the atonement and a flawed view of man, the result is going to be flawed methodology. And so his whole attempt in his evangelistic crusade, he's the one who invented or originated the walking the aisle invitation and playing us so many verses of some hymn in order to uh, get people into a certain emotional state so that they would come forward weeping and wailing and he called it the anxious bench and there was a lot of emotion and that is the the start of the mod- many modern methods of evangelism but it's based on human viewpoint theology and human viewpoint methodology and when we come to scriptures we have to recognize that that God's ways are not our ways because God's thoughts are not our thoughts and we have to learn to think God's thoughts after him and that was the foundational problem in Corinth now let's turn to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 6 what we have seen in the first five verses is Paul's emphasis 
on the fact that he came to Corinth not emphasizing a methodology. See, the he's really answering that question he raised, the third question he raised back in chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the debater or disputer of this age? And the emphasis was on methodology in the debates. And so Paul said he came to proclaim the gospel to them and made it a point to avoid all of the methods that Greek culture thought was important in terms of oratory and rhetoric. In fact, what was said about him is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, where we read, For they say, referring to Paul, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. See, Paul made it a point that he was not going to, the emphasis was not going to be on his personal presentation, either in terms of the style and format of his, of his instruction or on his own personal appearance. Because the issue is the gospel, the issue is not style, the issue is not the form, but the content. So he emphasizes this and concludes in chapter 2, verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you except, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is the issue I said last time in, in the gospel and in evangelism is making sure you clearly present the issue that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin so that by faith alone in Christ alone we have salvation. It's not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon man. It's dependent upon God completely and totally. Now, that flies in the face of all human viewpoint thinking, which at some level wants to emphasize human effort, wants to emphasize human talent, wants to emphasize uh, human motivation, uh, human intent, that somehow sincerity is a value, and often you'll hear people say, well, they were just so kind, they were so sincere about what they believed, I, I can't understand how God wouldn't let them into heaven, they were just so good. Well, people can be sincere, and they can be sincerely wrong, and I remember the time that I was sincerely wrong when I thought I was out of a, outside of a school zone in Houston one time, and, and I saw the speed limit sign up in front of me, and it said speed limit 35, and I sped up to 35, but I wasn't out of the school zone yet. And the cop did not care how sincerely I believed that I was uh, out of the school zone and how sincerely I believed that people should drive 20 in a school zone. The fact was I was still in the school zone, and I had a $200 ticket to pay. So we have to recognize that sincerity and truth are not related concepts at all. People can be sincere, and they can be sincerely wrong. The issue is to conform our thinking to the absolutes of God's Word. So Paul emphasizes that the, the content of the gospel and the thinking of the Word affects how you do what you do, whether it's an evangelistic methodology or how you run a church or, or how you live your life. You, it starts with thinking. Now, the question that should come to us as believers is, okay, how does this process begin? How do we understand Scripture, and how do we come to orient our thinking to absolute truth? And this is what Paul addresses in the second half of chapter 2, or the second part of chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. He's going to explain what divine viewpoint wisdom is, where it comes from, and why the unsaved person can't comprehend it. Starting in verse 6, he says, However, we speak wisdom 
among those who are mature, and he is recognizing a general principle here called a gnomic truth or general principle of truth, that as those who are mature, those who have a frame of reference in the Word will understand the truth of what he has just said. Immature believers who have not yet fully uh, gone through that process of understanding how Scripture addresses things and how God's Word is completely and radically different from man's thinking, how divine viewpoint is a radical break from human viewpoint, uh, they, immature believers will not fully appreciate or comprehend this truth. They have not gotten to that point yet in their growth, but Paul recognizes that those who are mature will grasp the principle. He says, yet this wisdom that we are speaking, and that is what we call divine viewpoint, this wisdom of this speaking is not of this age, and that is a term, a genitive of source, and indicates that the source of the wisdom is not of this age. An age here is a term that is not related to a dispensation, but is related to this world. It's a temporal concept, and it's related to the same term that's used of, of Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that he is the God of this age. That's not a term that's related to a dispensation per se, but is related to this world system and this time, uh, time frame from the creation or actually from the fall in Genesis chapter 3 up to the return of Jesus Christ at the second advent. So this wisdom does not have its source in this age, in this time period, in the culture that dominates the world system, which has its origin in Satan. This wisdom is not of this age, neither is it from the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. It is not the rulers here. It has to do with the phrase that refers to those who are first and foremost. From the root in the Greek is archon, which means first or foremost. So it can apply to rulers, and it can apply also to your primary thinkers, such as Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and other uh, human viewpoint philosophers. So he says the wisdom is not from the rulers, that, that is the, the primary thinkers of this age. You take everything that they've said, no matter how brilliant it is, no matter how much truth may be present in Aristotelian philosophy, no matter how much truth he stumbled on is in his Nicomachean ethics or how much truth is in Plato or in Plato's Republic. Because remember, when men live in God's world, to function at any level, you have to adopt God's absolutes to some degree. The unbeliever cannot live as if his radical uh, relative system is true in every area, because if relativism is, is, is an absolute, then everything is relative, and, what's, uh, and even, that would apply to even traffic laws. And that would apply to all laws of physics. And so you could not count on the fact that today your car will start when you go out in, in the driveway. And if you believe your car will start when you go out in the driveway every morning, then you believe at some level that there are absolute, uh, unchanging absolutes in the universe. And that is inconsistent and incompatible with primary assumptions that the universe is dominated by chance. And that is the ultimate metaphysic of all modern secular humanism and Darwinian Darwinian uh, concepts of biology. So Paul is saying that that uh, you add up everything they say, and even though there are elements of truth there, it all comes to nothing because their whole framework, their whole frame of reference is false. That's why it is so important for believers to not just exchange the details of their thinking, but the framework 
of their thinking. And yet in most churches, in most congregations, most pastors do not grasp that fully. At least if they do, it doesn't affect the methodology of what they do when they get in front of the congregation. You see, that's why at our church we believe in teaching, because teaching is directed towards giving information, helping people understand how things relate to one another so they can build a frame of reference, a divine viewpoint framework, so that they then can go out and handle all of the various issues in life. If you approach what takes place in a pulpit ministry from the viewpoint of preaching, the common concept of preaching, which as I have pointed out in earlier studies in 1 Corinthians 1, is not the biblical concept of preaching, which is proclamation of the gospel, but if you look at the at the commonly accepted view of preaching, it is more oriented to encouragement and exhortation. My basic critique of the way most homiletics is taught today is it's long on application and short of understand of on thinking on teaching. And the result of that is people may be taught a lot of things about how they should do it. And many of the applications are good and wonderful. And people may be taught how they should live, given a lot of principles about how to have better relationships and better marriages and better families and various other aspects of life. But the problem is, if you don't understand the thinking rationale that goes lies behind it, then when you get into a situation that has not been specifically addressed from the pulpit, then you don't know how to respond because you don't have that frame of reference. When you get a biblical frame of reference from teaching, then even though I may not have directly taught on a particular situation that you run into in life, you now have a framework or a frame of reference so you should be able to think your way through the situation and come to the biblical application. And that way you don't have to sit up here and just say, okay, in this situation do this, in that situation do that. That leads to legalism. And that's what happens is you reduce Christianity to a system of morality instead of a system of thought that produces virtue. So there's a radical distinction there, so that once again we see that that theology affects methodology. What you think affects what you do. So Paul says that you add up all of the thinking of the human viewpoint thinkers of the age, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how much truth they've arrived at, when you add it up, it's nothing in comparison to what God has said. In contrast, verse 7, Paul says, he begins with Allah, which is a strong statement of contrast. In contrast to what the rulers of this age teach, we speak, or in this context it should be translated, we teach, wisdom, God's wisdom in a mystery. And mystery was a key term here, and he's beginning to use a little bit of a double, a double entendre here. And the reason is that in Greek culture, the term mystery or mysterion in Greek was a sort of a catchphrase for, the, for a group of religions that they had. And we call them the Greek mystery religions. And the idea in the Greek mystery religions that you uh, got involved with these, they were sort of like secret fraternities or secret groups, and you had initiation rites that you went through. And once you went in the, through those initi- initiation rites and you were a member of that, that group, then you had automatically a higher level of spirituality. See, the Corinthians had come out of that background, and one of the religious, uh, we'll study this a lot, especially when we get into the section on tongues, 
one of the mystery religions that dominated in Corinth was the worship of Dionysius. The Romans called him Bacchus. He was the god of wine. And Bacchus, uh, or Dionysius, actually came out of uh, what we know as Turkey, that is Anatolia at that time, over in uh, what the Romans called Asia Minor. And he took on, by the by the 3rd century B.C., he had taken on a position of prominence in the Greek uh, pantheon and Greek religious systems, and he would interchange himself, or he, was, uh, he would come and take Apollo's place when Apollo would go on vacation for about six months every year. And the basic and the key temple or the main temple for the worship of Apollo was at Delphi. And just to give you a little preview of coming attractions, at Delphi you had was one of the most well-known sites in the ancient world. There was a uh, priestess there who was said to have a Pythian, uh, the spirit of, of Puthanos, or a, which is where we get our word python, and it was a serpent. And she had a spirit of divination, and she would speak in... in, in uh, inarticulate speech, what some would call tongues, but she would speak in inarticulate speech, and it was said to be the, the voice of the God speaking through her, and she would forecast the, the future, and she would tell, answer questions about, well, people would go there, and they would give a certain amount of money, and then she would tell them how they should, uh, what would happen in, in their future. And so she was the priestess of Apollo. So you have uh, Apollo being uh, exchanged with Dionysius for part of the year, and that would go back and forth. And so all of this fit together. And when when the priestesses for Apollo or Dionysius would go up into their sacred groves, they would, of course, because with Dionysius, because he was the god of wine, in order to get in touch with the god of wine, you have to drink a lot of wine. And so they would get drunk. See, that also applies to Ephesians 5.18, which says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by means of the Spirit. See, the Greeks were coming to Christianity out of this pagan background where wine was seen as a way to get in touch with the gods. Once you got in touch with the god and the god spoke through you, and they had a pseudo-tongues experience. See, that was their background. They just had this inarticulate uh, speech. Then they were they had reached a level of super spirituality. They were initiated in the into the Mysterion doctrines. So Paul is addressing their problem there in very subtle ways by using these these words that they had uh, brought along from their Greek culture, and he's redefining them in terms of divine viewpoint. So you have to be careful here because he's very subtle in the way he is addressing their particular uh, background and their particular problem. And he is emphasizing this is the wisdom of God, that this is indeed a mysterion. But, for, but biblically, and in terms of a technical definition, mysterion refers to a previously unrevealed truth. So he introduces, by this use of this word mysterion, he is introducing the concept of revelation, that God is the one who is involved in revealing himself to man. This is a basic proposition, number one, that God exists, and number two, that God is a God who communicates clearly about himself to his creatures. That God, if God can communicate, and if he is communicating to his creatures, then he is communicating in a way that can be understood by his creatures. That is the background. And I say, see, most people, when they read a passage like this, they want to jump into some sort of mysticism that God reveals is so mysterious we have to have some sort of existential encounter with the Word in order to come to understand what it means, and all of a sudden that throws it into the realm of subjectivity and emotion. 
But that is not where Paul is going with this. In fact, it's just the opposite. And he says that we're speaking the wisdom of God in a mystery that is in terms of unrevealed truth. It's been hidden. It is the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory. Now, in this context, this mystery is not so much how Paul uses in Ephesians where he's talking about the unrevealed truths related to the church age. Here he's talking about the fact that God's revelation is a mystery to unbelievers. It is unrevealed to them as unbelievers. The context here is not talking about specific truth related to the church age. Now, how do I know that? Because the next verse he's in this section, in verse 9, two verses down, is a quote uh, to substantiate this point from the Old Testament. Now, if the use of mysterion here was a reference to church-age truth, then he wouldn't be going to an Old Testament passage to substantiate it because the whole point that Paul is making in Ephesians when he uses the word mysterion is that church-age doctrine, in fact, the, the, even the reality of the church-age was not present, not known, not revealed to the Old Testament uh, prophets. They were not aware of the fact that there would be this intercalation, this parenthesis between the first advent of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and that there would be a special age between the two that is the church age. So here he's using mysterion in a much broader sense in terms of the fact that there is... uh, revealed truth that has not been understood or not been revealed to the Gentiles. They have not understood this. Verse 8 goes on to develop this. He says, this is a mysterion, a mystery to unbelievers, which none of the rulers of this age knew. That's the same kind of term, we, same term we have back, back in verse 6. That is, all the philosophers, all the thinkers, all of the great men of the ancient world who were probing the mysteries of the universe did not understand any of this. They may have come up with some great ideas, but they lacked absolute truth. Verse 8, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, in other words, if they had been aware of what had been revealed and understood its true import, that would include both the Gentiles and Roman involvement in the crucifixion of Christ, as well as the Jews and the Jewish involvement in the crucifixion of Christ. And the emphasis here is that even the Jews did not accurately understand and interpret that which had been revealed to them. It was still a mystery to them. And why was it a mystery? We're going to see that it was a mystery because they were unbelievers, and unbelievers do not understand the truth of God's Word because they are incapable of doing so. There has to be a special work of God, God the Holy Spirit, to make it clear, and that's going to start with the gospel, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 8, none of the rulers knew this. Had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have been able to read the Old Testament. They would have understood the prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53, and in many other passages, Psalm 22 and many others, and they would have recognized him for who he was. You, you, you would think that, that in light of uh, the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and the rabbis knew that, you would think that they would have a, a uh, committee of rabbis down in Bethlehem every year checking all the births. 
when they were looking for the Messiah, but they didn't do that. So that indicates that even though at one level they knew what the Scripture said, they were able to inform Herod that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and it didn't have any real impact in their thinking at all, and that is because they were they were unbelievers. What this passage is going to say is it's not that believers are not that unbelievers can't come to some knowledge of what the Bible says. You look in European European scholarship, uh, European academics very different from American academics. In Europe, if you were a teacher or professor, you hold one of the highest positions of respect in society. If you're in America and you're a teacher or professor, you're near the bottom somewhere because, you know, we uh, uh, we honor the people who make money, not the people who can think. And in Europe, you, in many uh, countries in Europe, what happens is around the age of 12 or 13, students in school take certain uh, achievement tests. And depending on how they function on those tests, they're either put into an, uh, an academic track related to uh, university and academics or they're put into more of a technical track that uh, prepares them to be a good uh, craftsman on BMWs or Mercedes or something like that uh, as opposed to going to work in, in, in university. And one of the great careers that you can choose in Germany is to be a theologian. You don't have to be a Christian to be a theologian. You just It's just a great career track. And so there are many uh, uh, theologians that have been, been produced in Germany in the last 200 years that don't have a clue what the gospel is all about, but they have made a career of studying the Bible, studying the original languages, and in many ways they have great insights, but you have to read them very carefully and uh, knowingly and understand the background of their thought because uh, they don't have, a, in many ways, an accurate understanding of, of what the Scripture is saying, but they have, can make some brilliant points about the more technical aspects of just Greek grammar, syntax, word studies, meanings of words, things of that nature. So that I'm not saying that the unbeliever can't come to some level of understanding of what the Scripture says, but he can't come to an an applicational level. He can't put these things together and come up with a true frame of reference because the missing ingredient is that he is spiritually dead and spiritually ignorant. And what this passage is saying is that the unbeliever is basically spiritually brain dead and there will always be certain elements missing. He's going to operate because he's living in God's world and according to God's laws. He has to operate according to those those eternal laws to some degree. Some unbelievers, because of their background, because of a culture that is more impacted by absolute truth from Scripture, are going to be more, are going to be closer to Scripture in their thinking. They're going to have a, a large degree of established, what we call establishment principles in their soul. They may be very moral. They may understand a lot of uh, truths that are in Scripture and operate on them, but they, they are divorced from that foundation, which is Jesus Christ and the grace of God. So in verse 8, Paul says, None of the rulers of this age knew this doctrine. If they had really understood it, if they had really been able to put it together and come up with the right conclusion, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, in contrast, as it has written, verse 9, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
And this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, and it emphasizes two things, and that is, first of all, absolute truth or that frame of reference of divine viewpoint can't be understood through empiricism. Empiricism is that philosophical system of knowledge that says that we can know absolute truth on the basis of sense knowledge. Man is born, Aristotle said, with a tabula rasa. That means his mind's a blank slate, and what fills it up and what writes on that in terms of what we might say in terms of the information age, what, what programs and codes that tabula rasa is what comes into the mind through the sense data. As a little baby begins to, to develop, he, ha- he feel, touches things, he sees things, he hears things, and then the mind processes what is seen and what is heard and what is tasted and what is touched. And it's from that starting point of experiential data, of sense data, that knowledge is developed. And so on the basis of sense data, you can arrive ultimately at uh, eternal truth. That's the position of empiricism. But it always falls apart, as I have said, because the root found, the, 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 the root assumption, the basic presupposition of empiricism is that man's mind, the finite mind of man, is capable of moving from finite truth to infinite truth. And that has been disproven in many, many different cases. So empiricism is always bankrupt. You can't get to God and the absolutes of, of God on the basis of empiricism alone. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. And here we have the Greek word cardia, which is a term that is used not, in fact, it's never used in the Scripture of your biological heart. It's never used of that organ that pumps blood and circulates blood through the body. It is always used of the, uh, in some metaphorical sense. Usually it applies, as we would say, the heart of a matter to the core, the very essence of something. And so when it refers to the soul, it refers to that which is at the core of the soul, which is our thinking. The psalmist says, as a man thinketh in his heart, except that's a bad translation, it's really soul there, it's nefesh, as a man thinketh in his soul, so is he. The core of what makes us what we are is how we think. So at the very core of our soul is, is, is thinking. And the Bible uses two different words to talk about the, inner, the uh, thinking of the soul. And so I, we draw this in two concentric circles. The innermost is the cardia, and that's the heart. This is where your most deeply held positions are and beliefs are. And then there is the outer core of the thinking, which is called the noose. So you have two areas where there is uh, intellection or thinking going on inside of the soul. And so here uh, Paul says that it hasn't. the starting point isn't the heart either, uh, Eye has not seen or ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. In other words, this is the position of rationalism. This was the position exemplified in the ancient world by Plato and modern philosophy by Descartes, that man can start with just the first principles of his thinking alone, and then on the basis of reason alone, move from finite thought to infinite reality. That always falls apart because, once again, the basic assumption or presupposition is in the ability of human intellection to come to infinite truth. And it leaves out the fact that human thought is always distorted by the, the uh, fall of Adam. 
and by original sin, and therefore man is finite, and he's always going to, while he may arrive at certain truths related to creation, he can't ever make that leap from the creation to the creator on his own. Now, that does not mean that that man doesn't know that God exists. Romans 1 says it's clear from creation that God exists. But he knows that God exists, but it doesn't give him any content. We know that there's a uh, that there's a that, but we don't know there's a what. Now that confused everybody this morning. I had a, philo- a philosophy professor used to always say that we have a that we don't have a what. We said, "What does that mean?" That's awfully confusing at nine or ten o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. We know that God exists, but see, nonverbal revelation, the fact that there's a creation that tells us that there's order in the universe, doesn't tell us anything about him. We don't know that he is a God of love, that he is eternal, that he has given us his son. You can't get that from looking at creation. You can know that he is there, but you don't know anything about him. For example, you may come home one day, and you may find a little yellow piece of paper stuck on your front door from the ups man. And UPS has tried to deliver a package, so you know that he has been there, but you don't know if he was short or tall, fat or skinny, a male or a female. You know that he is there, was there, but you don't know anything about him. So just because you know God exists, it's it, it, the best you can get at is is a little G because you only get that capital G by having some a special revelation that is verbal that has content. So God says, man on his own can't get there, either through empiricism or rationalism, can't get to the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, in this quote from the Old Testament, we have to pay attention to a couple of key ingredients, or we're going to have a real problem when we get down to the... um, rest of this passage for example it starts off with the with the phrase um, in verse 9 things actually in the in the greek it starts off things which eye has not seen and the first word in the greek looks like this has a rough breathing mark just the letter a but this is a neuter plural uh, relative pronoun and as a neuter plural relative pronoun, we're going to have to follow the bouncing ball. Remember, you were a kid and you watched the cartoons, and they'd come on with a little song, and they had the bouncing ball. You'd follow. Well, if you don't want to follow the bouncing ball here with this neuter plural, you're going to completely miss some of the things that Paul is saying, and that has unfortunately been too often the case. It starts with the, with this word things, and then says, the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. And then we have it, it's repeated again. You have this same uh, neuter plural repeated again, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So the things here refers to what? Doctrine. Special revelation. The content of Scripture. Now, where does this quote come from? This is important. This quote comes from the Old Testament. That means that this is not talking about a specifically church age procedure. It is something that is 
true in the Old Testament dispensation of Israel before the cross. So in terms of dispensations, we have the Old Testament dispensation of Israel. Jesus Christ comes at the first advent, dies on the cross, and then 50 days later, the day of Pentecost, we have the first coming of God the Holy Spirit, the descent of God the Holy Spirit upon the church, where you have the realities of the Holy Spirit indwelling every single believer. As part of that indwelling, there is the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit as uh, prophesied by and promised by Jesus Christ in John chapter 14 uh, through 16. You have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. You have the teaching of God the Holy Spirit. And then you have the filling of God the Holy Spirit, which is related to, to understanding the teaching and making it... Uh, uh, usable in the life of the believer. That does not occur until the day of Pentecost. Now, if this verse is something that is related to, to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the church age, then you can't have it in the Old Testament. Okay, if the point I'm making here is the basic dynamic of what this verse is talking about has to be something that is true in the uh, pre-Pentecost era, as well as the post-Pentecost era. Now, why I am saying that is because the key word that we're going to run into throughout this whole passage is the Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And there are various meanings for the word pneuma in Greek. You have a basic natural meanings are wind and breath. In some places, places it, it, it has the idea of thought. It just refers to the immaterial part of man in a very general sense. It can also refer to the Holy Spirit, the pneuma hagias, the Holy Spirit. And it can also refer to something that man lost at when Adam fell, and that he recovers at salvation, and that is what we call the human spirit. Now, you have to be very careful the context to determine which uh, meaning pneuma has, because there are various places in Scripture, and this is one of them, where Paul uses the word pneuma within four or five verses of each other in four or five different ways. And if you're not careful and you don't think through and compare other scripture with this scripture, you can easily come to some wrong conclusions about what Paul is saying here. That's why it's important to understand, first of all, that the things which God has prepared for those who love him, the doctrine that is revealed, is Old Testament as well as New Testament revelation. Therefore, it's at a core level, the, the, the key element here is not going to be the Holy Spirit, but the human spirit, and we will see that when we get to verse 14. Verse 10, but that's a contrast. Man can't get there through rationalism or empiricism, but God has revealed to us through his spirit. For to us, God has revealed eris tense, constant of eris, referring to the event in the past without uh, regard to its continuation, without regard to its process. God revealed these things to us through the Spirit, through the Spirit, literally. There is no His in the uh, Greek text. It is literally through the Spirit. God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. Now, 
That is the Holy Spirit. So in verse 10, God revealed them. What's the them? The them is Old Testament revelation through the Spirit. Here it's the Holy Spirit because God the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity who revealed Old Testament truth and was the agent of inspiration and revelation in the Old Testament. So verse 10, God has revealed these things to us through His Spirit for explanation. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So here again, it refers to the Holy Spirit's function as the one who is the revealer of the Word. So this is verse 10. Then we get to verse 11. Verse 11 says, For what, for what man knows the things of man... What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Now, here we're going to use spirit in a different sense. Uh, in the Greek, it reads, for, what, for who among men, who of men, literally, it's a, uh, a, a genitive that refers to one among many. It's called a, um, a genitive of the part for the whole. Who among men knows the things of of men. Now, once again, the things here is you have a neuter plural. So the things of man here is going to refer to thoughts, going to refer to content, just as things refers to content back in verse 9. Who among men knows the things of man except the spirit of man? And here it's talking about just that spirit here refers to just the immaterial part of man, almost a, just a ter- general term for his thinking, his inner nature. It's not a technical use at all. But he's using it, the, the reason Paul uses the word pneuma here for this innermost thinking of man is because he is going to use it in parallel with the Spirit of God in order to draw a contrast. So it's extremely subtle, stylistic device to get our attention. He then goes on to say, Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And here again we have the term the things, that is, the thoughts, really because it refers to Scripture, it refers to the thoughts, the thoughts that are re- revealed by God, but it refers to the thoughts of God. And no one knows the thoughts of God, what goes on inside the mentality of God, except for the Spirit of God. And here we have the phrase uh, in the Greek, ta Numa, this is really important. I'm very technical, but very important. Ta numa tu theu. Now this is a genitive of source. Tu theu. Ta numa is your head noun. This refers to the Holy Spirit, who is uh, from the source of God. Or it could possibly be a genitive of relationship, but it's more likely in this context a genitive of source from the source of God. That you get simply from the genitive. Now watch this very carefully. We're getting short on time, but it's we can't stop here. Uh, who, what among man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God, that is, revelation, except the spirit of God. Now we, con- slight contrast here, now we, that is, believers, have received not the spirit of the world. Now in verse 12, spirit of the world equals the thinking 
of the cosmic system, the thinking of the world, human viewpoint thinking. We haven't received that. We're in contrast to that. We haven't received the thinking of the world, but the spirit who is from God, the spirit who is from God. Now, this is very important because up here we said that the tanuma tutheu equals the Holy Spirit. But in this phrase, and there's three other times in this section when Paul uses this same phrase, tanuma tutheu, tanuma tutheu, tanuma tutheu. And here he says tanuma ek tutheu. Now, you ought to pay attention to that. I mean, words make a difference. And why does Paul, in this one instance, use a preposition that he doesn't use in those other phrases? I mean, ek is the preposition for source or origin. Tutheu gets you that. It's a genitive of source or origin. So why does he insert ek? Because it's a different spirit. Here it's tanuma. Ek, I'll just write the English up here to keep it simpler. Ek to theu. Tanuma ek to theu. Now, what is the spirit who comes from the source of God? Well, the ek here is going to emphasize the fact that this is a different spirit. This is the human spirit. We have received the human spirit. We received the human spirit at the instant of salvation. That's very clear from Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 4.12 and uh, First, Second uh, Thessalonians, or First Thessalonians, uh, chapter, or Second Thessalonians three eighteen, Second Thess three eighteen, that we have, we're made up of body, soul, and spirit, three parts. That the soul is distinct from the spirit, and yet, nevertheless, they work so closely together in the believer that at times you can't distinguish them. But the Bible clearly distinguishes the two, and we receive a new immaterial element to our nature at the point of salvation, and that is the element that enables the soul to have a relationship with God and to understand God and to learn the things of God. And that is why in verse 12 Paul says, Now we have received, we as believers have received, and this is the uh, aorist tense of uh, Lombano, which emphasizes an event that occurred in the past. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, and most of your Bibles have that spirit capitalized, and because, as I've argued, it is a different phraseology, that should be a lowercase spirit, the human spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. It has to be lowercase because if this is uppercase, Paul would be saying that you can't understand Old Testament revelation without the Holy Spirit. And the Jews in the Old Testament were not given the Holy Spirit as a, to teach them. And therefore, the implication would be, if this is the Holy Spirit, that Old Testament believers couldn't understand the truth of God's Word. And that's false. So whatever we receive that helps us to understand this revelation is something that is common to believers in the Old Testament and believers in the New Testament. And so for that reason, as a second reason, this must be understood as a lowercase s. Well, there's too much in the next few verses to cover it uh, and make it through in the next two or three minutes, so I don't want to uh, treat it too, too superficially. We'll come back and finish the chapter next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to get into this important 
and crucial passage of uh, Corinthians to help us understand how we uh, not only learn the truth of your word, but also how we how unbelievers come to understand the gospel at salvation. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. He did all the work. Therefore, there is nothing you can add to it. You cannot impress God by joining a church or being good or trying to help him out. In fact, if we try to help him out, the Scripture says that that nullifies the gift. It is a free gift that we neither earn nor deserve. All you have to do to receive that gift is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again according to the Scriptures. Right now, right where you sit, you can receive that free gift of eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, realizing the importance of how we do what we do, the importance of exchanging our human viewpoint thinking for divine viewpoint thinking, that we may learn to think as you think. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.